It's more than that. Can you hear your lion talking to you? Voltron is capable of more than we ever imagined. Attack! Welcome to Genreless. I'm Chris Spivey. And I'm Eddie Webb. And today on Genreless, we'll talk about Voltron. Having seen the OG Voltron, mm-hmm. both iterations, I mean like lions and flying boxcars that formed a robotic sort of Voltron, mm-hmm. and the new iteration of Voltron, I have many thoughts, some of which are good, some of which are bad, and some of which are, why not just call your series something else? Okay. This will be interesting to get into. <laughs> Um, all right, so I guess the the quick recap of this version of Voltron is there's this galactic empire that is a horrible threat to the galaxy, similar to Star Wars, but mm-hmm. they've been around for millennia, and eventually they sort of reach the soul system, and that's where our real story for us picks up because it has our five crew members who actually start off somewhat separate as we have... Shiro, who's out on a moon with some other people, and they sort of get captured, and we don't know what happens to Shiro for about a year. Then we sort of flash forward to Earth, where we've got Pidge, Lance, and Hunk sort of all aboard a simulator going through like a space adventure equivalently. And then you find out they're being training because they're all cadets. Mm-hmm. And of which we then get introduced to Keith, who is sort of like the the rogue rebel, almost a, a Raphael type for Ninja Turtles fans. Mm-hmm. He breaks into this crashed ship and frees Shiro, and the team quickly sort of forms up with the five of them who discover the blue lion that's on Earth. And from there, the blue lion takes him through a wormhole where they meet the rest of the cast and sort of figure out the plot in the first episode which I think this is a brilliant piece of, of filming, by the way, is that the pilot is in fact three episodes that is put together as one movie. So yeah. that utter brilliance, because what it does is sometimes you may want to see a pilot of a show and you might be willing to give it an hour and a half, but if it's only 30 minutes, you'll just watch someone one part of it and call it a day. Mm-hmm. This way you actually capture people's attention for the entire piece of it. So kudos to that. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah, it, it, it's it clearly needed some time to to get rolling. So you're right. Rather than go thirty minutes and go, oh, nothing happened. So I guess I'm done. It makes sense. To kind of turn it to an hour long or hour and a half long episode. And once they're with the other cast members, Alora and Corin, who, by the way, uh, is is great to to always have. Roz Davis. Ah, that's not his name. I mispronounced it. That's my Alabama coming out. <laughs> But uh, Flight of the Concords, Murray, right there in space with us throughout the trip. That was pretty Mm -hmm. awesome. And the rest of the episodes basically revolves around trying to acquire the other lions to form Voltron to stop the initial threat. Some of the recovery we get to see on screen and some of it is just sort of happens quickly and is sort of brushed over. Mm -hmm. And that's the first episode truncated down to a very quick blurb for you, everyone. And it's it's interesting because um, so I saw this more or less as it was coming out, and I had not watched the original Voltron in, in decades. And so when I first saw this, I was like, "This isn't really much like the original show." But us having gone back and watched it, there's actually a surprising amount of it. Um, like they took the bits that were just kind of half mentioned in the original show and turned them into actual things. Like, okay, you know, here's the actual space explorer fleet and structure and what that looks like. Um, and so they actually kind of spun that out into, okay, what if, what if these details were actually dug into it and then thought about, uh, but also I, I, I'm, 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 it's weird that they replaced Sven with Shiro. Uh, because on the one hand, I mean, thank God. Right. Cause we don't think we'll go through another round of that voice acting. Uh, I don't know. They could brush that person off and have them come back out of retirement. <laughs> it's your big comeback, buddy. <laughs> um, but also, it's just... I, I felt like 
we see, we see more on the other sides, I think, but like, I feel like Shiro was kind of take, taking bits and pieces of other characters' roles. Um, so he ended up, the actual supporting cast got shuffled around a bit more in terms of their personalities and, and, and archetypes. So it, it, it was like, it was mostly there, but also there's some changes where it's like, I don't know why necessarily that change was made. So that was sort of part of my joke about why not just call your series something else. Mm-hmm. Um, as a, a person that has never been a huge Voltron fan, I, I watched it somewhat growing up, but the the characters don't really even seem to have that much of the essence of the original characters, which is fine. But then they also have removed a lot of different aspects and added in other features to them, which mm-hmm. is great. So because you're modernizing your show, but then I'm curious, why not just make a whole crop of new characters Then you could diversify them however you want to without right. adhering to any sort of standard. Cause they sort of half did that by getting rid of Sven. Mm-hmm. Why not just take the full step? And like, if you totally recast everyone, you could even name them all the same thing, but just have them be different and then be like done with it. Like even for instance, Pidge, who we'll talk about in the original series, it was very, very uh, male heavy for like all yep. the characters. Mm-hmm. And here they sort of give that illusion to, but then you find out through the course of the show that Pidge is actually the sister and daughter of the two scientists from the first scene who you never get to see because they're in spacesuits and Shiro is heroically not in a like his face is revealed right. cool hair sitting out. So, you know, <laughs> that is a main character. You other people, I think you're not important at least right now. Mm-hmm. And Pidge is related to them, but why would Pidge as a woman have to try to sneak in to the Academy pretending to be a male when there are women in the Academy? And I'm confused about why these are parts of the show and not just have it be like that from the jump. Yeah, I mean it 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 felt like the the design was we have to get the original fans on board with this new direction so we need to make a nod towards the original structure and and ease them into it where I feel like if you would just start like you said with a new structure off the bat it it would have actually worked better. Um because I mean like Honestly, I kept confusing Shiro and Keith in my head because Shiro's role is very much Keith's role in the original show. And Keith's Which, role is kind of Lance's role in the original show. But Lance is a separate, separate character who's kind of bits and pieces of the original Lance, but not entirely. And it's just a lot. Yeah. So, my hence my joke. And yeah, yeah. part of it feels as if they it's a as a writing prompt or trick for folks basically what you said i think is probably the best way and i'll leave it at that but it as a viewer i was annoyed and Mm -hmm. feeling annoyed like in the first three episodes is not the best way to start something Mm -hmm. and having said that though the show did one of the things that was my biggest complaint about the original series is that the lions themselves should feel powerful and important. Yes. And just not like a stepping stone until we can form Blazing Sword. No, that is and definitely one thing that is that they do well with the first few episodes. Is they Because originally, I mean, we talked about it. It was uh, uh, the lions were just kind of the things you had to do to make Voltron. And then the show constantly reinforced, okay, we need to make Voltron. We're missing this piece. We can't make Voltron. We can't make this. Whereas... This version it has the same kind of rough structure. We have to find the lions, but the lions themselves were portrayed and explicitly coded as these are just cool. Oh, and we happen to also form a giant robot. And that felt better. Like that gave gravitas to the lions. It made these cadets who equivalently get to pilot these super machines because, let's say, destiny um, mm-hmm. led sure. them to them to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. And even when they meet Princess Allure, who they wake up 10,000 odd years later from her stasis chamber and everything else, mm-hmm. she randomly assigns them lions, having known them for 30 seconds, saying, 
I see this is your true personality. This line belongs to you. This line would be right. good for you. Mm. It feels very rushed and at the same time feels very slowly executed. It's it's interesting because um, we had talked about the blend of magic and science in the original show. And there's that kind of Master Universe 80s style to just jam these together because reasons. And this show seems like it's taking more steps for let's reframe advanced science as if it were magic. Um, and it does that partially by dropping out intermediary steps occasionally. So it just looks fantastical. Uh, but sometimes that, that like in a case like this, like I can put together that, you know, we, we later find out that, that the castle and the free the lions have some kind of psychic rapport. Um, and so I could see a step where either the castle or the lions gave her this information and then she just regurgitated it. But because we're missing that step, it comes across as if it were magic to kind of get that fantasy feel to things. But what happens is just like you said, it comes across like there's a scene missing and, and that occasionally can be, uh, if, if, if not frustrating, it, it's just an odd choice. Cause you're, cause you're right. The, the whole thing is paced a bit weirdly. Like when you explained all of that, that's like an hour of cartoon, a little bit more than an hour cartoon. So not a lot happens, but yet there are parts of it that are weirdly rushed. Everything is a bit off. For a lot of the older shows that we watch, I, I am a, a lot more generous with some of my, my thoughts and creativity. Sands, the second Robotech series. <laughs> but oh, that's as the masters, <laughs> poor, poor robot masters. As this was made in 2016, and I think it's by the people that did Avatar and Korra, yep. if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to give them that same benefit of the doubt because they're writing for a modern audience. These are aimed at not not just kids. These are aimed at like young adults, kids, and older adults. Because you've mentioned originally, like they want to bring in the old school Voltron fans. And right. those old school Voltron fans are likely not teenagers. I could be wrong. But I'm going to say they're people of a certain older. age. Yeah. And honestly, I think this is a problem. Uh, we haven't really talked about platform a ton on this show. But I think it's the first time it really, it's really become relevant because everything else we've talked about in some form or fashion was on broadcast television. Um, and this was specifically written for Netflix, which you know famously drops a season at a time. Uh, and the writing for streaming only shows that release in that all in one format is different than episodic weekly television. And one of the flaws of that is that sometimes you have episodes where basically nothing happens. It needs you to get from episode, like say three to five. So episode four is just kind of the middle bit. And if it were released on television or if this was the only episode you got that week, that would be a terrible episode. But because they expect you to kind of just go next one, next one, next one, it kind of, you're really looking at more like a six and a half hour long movie for each season rather than actual television. So when we look at it in this format, sometimes the flaws come out. And it's weird because as we go on, there are some of these that are genuinely solid episodes by themselves. And some of them that are really not. And I think this is one of those cases where like, this is a lot of more or less the, the monologuing that happens before the bits. And there's plenty of action and there's plenty of cool stuff happening. Don't get me wrong. It is way better than the literal 30 minutes of monologue that happened in episode two of classic Voltron. <laughs> but there's still a lot of throat clearing and setting things up and, it it, it 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 takes a long time to establish a premise and then it, it it's like, oh crap, we're running out of time. We need to have the next episode. So there is a kind of, I always feel like Netflix shows in particular in this format always have kind of weird pacing. The Marvel shows that Netflix did also kind of suffered from this where they, they sometimes like have too much and not enough time. If we ever do a superhero season and we have to do Disney plus shows too, their structure is unique. Oh, yeah. 
That's all I'll yeah, say about that. The, uh, like, I can think of one Disney Plus show off the top of my head that was very clearly a four-hour movie chopped into episodes. Um, so, I mean, it's... So, so I, I, the reason why I bring this up is because I feel like Avatar and Korra were paced better, but also those were written for Nickelodeon to be broadcast on cable. And so the writing was tighter because each episode had to carry itself. And that restriction is not as needed in a Netflix show, and it's starting to show already even out of the game. Which is not necessarily the best way to start something. Mm-hmm. Having said all of that, the pilot itself, I thought was pretty good on the whole. It would be a, like a solid B for me. Mm-hmm. Maybe B minus, because some of the, acquiring some of the lions felt like it was just sort of, your, your lion right now is not as important as us highlighting this person over here. Or Lance is our favorite character, so we're going to give Lance a whole bunch of screen time and some good one-liners. Yeah, the green lion was kind of just, you show up and there it is. Okay. <laughs> Here you go, Paige. Have a lion. <laughs> so, like, those things make it feel less like an ensemble show, but as if there are specific characters and everyone else is sort of like secondary or tertiary characters for that one character to be elevated to the lead. Mm-hmm is what the pilot gives. I'm not saying the rest of the series will adhere to that, but that's what it feels no, no, like no. from the amount of screen time given. And I would argue that for a, even a streaming show, a pilot is actually even more critical than broadcast TV because when a show comes out week to week, um, the first episode kind of doesn't land for you. You can let it go. Um, and then if people start talking about it and get you back into it, you can come back a few weeks later and go, okay, well, maybe I should, I'll just push through and get caught up to see what everyone's talking about. In a streaming show like this, if people aren't grabbing the first hour, there's going to be something coming next week or the week after that, that, that will take their attention. You have only one shot to keep people invested in the show. Maybe when the new seasons come out, people may talk about it and get back, but that's six months difference. Um, so I, I feel like the pilot needs to be even stronger for this structure format. So but I agree with you. It's generally a pretty decent, entertaining hour of television. I'm not, I'm not trying to dismiss and say, oh, it's awful. But it, 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 I agree with you also that from the teams coming from, on the platform it's coming from, and with the property it is, I, would, I expected it to be a little stronger the first time through. What do you think about the change of having our paladins, because now they're, they're paladins, which sort of adds more of that mystic feel to it to sort mm-hmm. of help entrench it more in magic. Yep. That's another thing I want to come back to in a second though. But how do you like them being introduced almost as cadets and super young and almost all inexperienced except for possibly Shiro? Uh, I think I liked it better. Um, it was clearly, well, okay, let me phrase that. In general, I like it better because it was done primarily to inject the level of humor that this team is known for because the Avatar and Korra shows are also really funny. Um, and they helped establish that kind of serialized epic drama with a strong dose of humor that has now become pretty common in animation. They were very much the pioneers of that in the early 2000s. Uh, that said, um, I feel like a little too often their unfamiliarity became the butt of the joke and certain characters take that burden more often than others. I don't mind fish out of water stuff. I mean, we saw in Buck Rogers, that's basically what Buck Rogers was, is the kind of, or, or um, uh, Farscape. There was plenty of moments of humor for that, but in both Farscape and Buck Rogers, those characters were otherwise pretty competent, except for in situations where they didn't understand what was going on. Whereas I see, feel like characters like Hunk take on a lot of the burden of let, let the people on. Oh, look, the fat guy's going to do the funny stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really rubbed me the wrong way throughout the show. So I feel like a lot of that was lampshaded under all of their cadets. It's like, yeah, but if they're cadets, they should be at least pretty good at their jobs. And most of them are, but a few characters don't quite like, honk into a degree Lance get hit with that stick a little more often. And it's a bit frustrating because the show is written that they are actually really good at their jobs. They're just inexperienced and in Hunk's case, a little overwhelmed. And in Lance's case, it's a little too egotistical. 
but the little two gets pushed hard. So I, I like the idea of it, but I feel like the the characterizations they're almost too young. They're almost written a little too young at times. For me, I would have preferred if they left them as experienced people if they are. Having mm-hmm. having served before, you don't lose humor because you have experienced people that have done a lot of different things and stuff. Oh, no, 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 And no. have seen combat. Uh, some of the funniest people I know are in situations a lot like this. And this is when humor is more important because it helps keep the stress level down. It helps keep bonding with the team. And you still get that same level of antagonism. Absolutely. But you also have people that are incredibly capable. And if they make a mistake, that even adds additional drama to what's going on, wondering why they made that mistake or like you could potentially have the stress get to them to make the mistake. Then you have like a team member come in with some underlying humor that rebolsters them. So you get the same thing and you lose some of the negative parts, which in retrospect, everything is easier, by the way, folks. So oh, sure. <laughs> I, I want to put that out there while we're discussing this. Because like when they were making this show for the first season, I don't think they had any idea if they get additional seasons, how it would be received. And that's something to keep in mind whenever you're providing any sort of criticism or commentary on something. No, I mean, I, in a lot of ways, I liken this to a degree to uh, Star Trek Next Generation um, in the sense that the first season was really pretty close to the original Star Trek formula. And then over the years, as they got popular and they got more confident, they started to make their own changes and make their own mark. And I do feel like we haven't gotten to later episodes, but I feel like the show does find its own voice later on. It's just that perhaps that voice takes it a little further away from the actual Voltron idea. And before we move on to the, the next episode, is it magic? Is it science? Is it psionics? Is it the Marvel method? Like, which one of these things are we doing? Because <laughs> <laughs> um, for the Marvel method, all magic is just high science that we don't understand yet. Right. All of the gods are actually aliens from a different dimension called Asgard and blah, blah, blah. Um, it's actually interesting is um, right after I watched this, I ended up reading um, a chunk of the Grant Morrison run of Justice League. And I realized that uh, Grant Morrison, they have a really interesting way of blending myth and science. Um, that, Is that the one where they introduce the angel? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, uh, and so it's, it very totally struck me as somewhere, and I realized that in the 80s, there was still this very strong line between fantasy and science fiction. And so you jam them together and have them sit next to each other in an awkward way, but that gives itself gives an interesting tension. Um, this is much more, like you said, they're, they're kind of both. And it's very much, let's reframe super advanced technology as if it were this thing. Um, but at times it does kind of muddy the waters. And and, and, and to be fair, that's, that's occasionally very interesting. Uh, sometimes when that happens, it's like, oh, okay. This, this leads to a third path. Um, like the connection to the lions uh, is much bigger than it was in the original cartoon. And the lions themselves almost start to develop personalities when they never speak. Uh, and that's really interesting. And because it is blurred between magic and science, it almost doesn't matter at times. Again, kind of like the Morrisonian uh, vibe of it just is roll with it. Um, so it bothered me a little bit, but after a while, I just, it, it, it didn't bother me anymore. Um, unlike with the original cartoon where it bothered me more over time because it was like, is this a spell? Is this magic? Is this a robot? Please tell me. And at least the, the world as it moved on, it started, the, the rules were consistent. So I didn't really care which of the rules we were going by. It's like, okay, as long as the rules are the same and more or less work as read, then whether it's magic or science doesn't bother me. But I think the original cartoon was just, they just kept changing the rules. And so it's like, okay, so pick one. That's why I'm saying psionics too, because it almost feels like the pilots have a psychic bond with specific mm-hmm. lions that hear their personality, which makes me then think about the TARDIS and the doctor because all TARDISes sort of form a psychic link with the primary pilot and some of the crew. Mm-hmm. 
And then I'm wondering, are lions actually limited tortoises because they seem to have an unknown amount of space inside and they can change their shape to form Voltron. It's all Doctor <laughs> Who. It is funny how the cockpit only fits one person except for when they need to have it fit four people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right. Uh, so the next episode, Black, the Black Paladin. Uh, starts off for us with Allura having been captured. Originally, they were trying to infiltrate uh, um, an enemy base. And during that time, the princess is captured, so the Voltron team sort of mounts a rescue. Mm-hmm. And through the course of the episode, we actually find out that Zorkon was the original pilot for the Black Lion and sort of mm-hmm. injects Shiro out into space. You actually get to see how powerful Zorkon is for reasons that we will discuss uh, when we hit The Legend Begins. Mm-hmm. And he's basically fighting one-on-one in space versus Keith and his Red Lion. And basically winning. <laughs> yeah. And Shiro sort of confronts the sorceress aboard the ship and is rescued by, in the end by Hunk and the princess. Mm-hmm. The most interesting part of this entire episode for me and help sort of show some of the depth that they were going for is at the end when our heroes are all escaping, trying to escape a wormhole is formed and no one knows how a wormhole is formed because the castle couldn't do it. The lions couldn't do it. And you see someone aboard ship kill one of the sentries and makes a wormhole for them to escape through. Mm -hmm. And the only reason it doesn't work out quite right once they're in is because the sorceress sort of cast a spell and I use spell in quotation marks. Um, to disrupt the wormhole and all of the Voltron team is shot off in random directions. And that's how the episode in first season ends, which is a great mm-hmm. cliffhanger. It is. Absolutely. Uh, and, and honestly, when I first watched this, um, finding out that Sarkon was the pilot of the black lion just blew my mind. Uh, it makes Zarkon's obsession with Voltron make way more sense in this version. Because before he was obsessed with Voltron just because that was the thing that was stopping him from doing what he wanted. And after a while, it's like, it, gets, it got a bit much. It's like, just conquer literally any other planet. You know? <laughs> <laughs> just, just give up on this one. Let it, This front is not yours to take. Um, but this one, it's like, okay, we have seen that these pilots have psychic, some kind of connection to their lions. He used to be the pilot for the Black Lion. 10,000 years may have passed. That would probably screw someone up pretty bad. So it, ma- it makes a lot more sense why this setup is the way it is. And it also adds an additional level of gravitas to Zarkon because the princess made 10,000 odd years and everyone in stasis. Mm-hmm. Zarkon has actively been marauding and killing people for 10,000 plus years. Yeah. Like that, it, that alone in itself is staggering. The leader of an empire that is crushing everyone else for that long. Mm-hmm. And now that is a challenge that your cadets are up against. Part of this to mm-hmm. me, now that I'm saying all this out loud, feels very much uh, as a shout as a shout back to Gundam Wing. And and my boy mm-hmm. Hiro Yuri. <laughs> I'll kill you. <laughs> we should talk about Gundam Wing at some point. I love Gundam Wing. Maybe we'll talk about Gundam Wing this season. Maybe we won't. Um, as a side note, uh, uh, there actually is uh, a group of people doing a uh, mobile suit of bridge Gundam wing where they basically cut down the episodes and then revoice them. And sometimes it's to be Ooh. funny and it's genuinely hysterical, particularly if you've seen Gundam wing previously, but Kuro Yui is also really funny on that. So, all right, I got to find that then. Oh, uh, but, but anyway, this is not speaking of a this, Gundam wing right. podcast today. Today. Yes. Um, no, uh, uh, I, this was a good kind of cliffhanger. Um, I could see, I, I will say that like the whole, um, they uh, get shoved into a wormhole thing. Um, definitely feels like the last 10 pages of the script were changed in the, oh, we got a new season. Okay, now we need to figure out how to connect this next season. Um, but that doesn't bother me, right? That's just how television is made. It's the only oh, one season we got them to have a different, third act structure so we can wrap things up. And it would have been defeating Zarkon, you know, 
Uh, so, I mean, it didn't bother me, but it was also very clearly like, you know, here's the, here's the last minute, you know, wrench to get us into season two. <laughs> I want to stress again, though, how much I, I enjoyed them enhancing and powering the lions because throughout this, you've seen the lions fight the starships. A lion might be able to destroy one ship by itself compared to if they form Voltron, you see Voltron destroying like waves of ships, which is mm-hmm. a great power scale. Which then lets you tell the story of Keith in a red lion, one-on-one battling Zorkon, and Zorkon is almost beating Keith. So that gives you a power reference for Zorkon, the character, without having to do anything else. Because most of the time, I think, up till now, Zorkon's always been in the back, sort of like saying, sending his fleet or enemies to go attack you. Yeah. And this is a nice way to show you how deadly this person is from strategic standpoint and from a physical standpoint in confrontation. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. It, it was a nice showcase for Red Lion and Lance, um, in in good uh, epic style booking. It actually makes sense because, like, the, the showdown we want to see eventually is Shiro versus Archon, right? And by not giving us that yet, it was smart. It was okay. You, you can get close to that conflict. This is a payoff for the season, but you're not going to see the fight you really want to see of Black Lion versus Archon. So it was a nice nod towards that, and it gives Lance and Red Lion a chance to shine. And you're right; it makes that one lion by itself look really, really menacing. As we're we're on on a time crunch today, uh, is there anything else about this one you'd like to talk about? If not, I'll jump over to the next one. No, because I want to talk space more. So I chose Space Mall because it is funny, but it also sort of enhances the plot itself all at once. Mm -hmm. And it's a nice break, even just from a general storytelling standpoint. You want to have drama, adventure, but then you want to have a chance for all your characters to like decompress and gel and run around and have silliness before you get back to any sort of drama horror, because then it sort of clears the board for you for new emotions. And with Space Mall, you have Shiro, who's trying to deepen his own bond with the Black Lion, while Corrin takes the rest of the Paladins off to what he says, basically a hive of scum and villainy that turns <laughs> out to be a bright, colorful space mall with the most important character in the entire series that, that they will eventually encounter here. The mall cop. The mall cop. Yes. Don't take my joke. <laughs> But the mall cop is so great. <laughs> and while they're there, you still have corn sort of trying to interact as if it was actually a place for smuggling. And it's not. It's literally a mall. You have Hunk having a misadventure that deals with food and being a master chef. Mm-hmm. Pidge and Lance sort of discover uh, 80s video game nostalgia. Mm-hmm. And, and the cow. All right. Talk about the cow. <laughs> actually, actually, uh, the, the cow is a funny kind of gag. No, the thing I want to talk about is um, one thing we didn't mention is uh, um, one of the catchphrases of Zarkon's Empire, you know, which is kind of the you know the um, so say we all equivalent is rabbit saw. Um, and one of the best gags is the 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 cook of the mall, the fo- food court restaurant is named Rabbit Sal, and that just love that because it's exactly the kind of horrible pun you would find in a food court, but it's a very specific pun to this universe. (laughs) Just like, that's amazing. Um, But no, they also, there's just, it's great, almost physical comedy, which is something that weirdly a lot of modern cartoons don't do very often anymore. Um, Like there's just a cow in the background and they, you know, the, the, the owner of the store has some beef with this cow, no pun intended. Um, because there's a side note about the, I hate you so much. And so he gives the cow away, you know, the free cow with every purchase. And so there's just a cow in the background for all of these shots. At some point they're like, why do you have a cow? It's like, it came free. And that's pretty much the whole conversation about the cow. Um, it's, it's more of a visual gag than anything else. And again, it's, this was more common. I think in, in older cartoons, a lot of modern cartoons are much more focused on, uh, uh, voice acting dialogue, which is great because our voice acting is way better. Um, but sometimes those visual gags don't quite show up as often, which in, I guess in a way that's 
good because then you can have episodes like this where that's so memorable as opposed to just being one of many visual gags. And for while all this is going on, you have Shiro who believes he and the lion have jetted off into space to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. And he gets a flashback more or less of what transpired with Zorkon mm -hmm. and ends up finding himself in a battle with Zorkon. They doesn't know how or why. And it turns out the lion is providing a psychic vision for Shiro of what happened and why it has such a strong bond with Zorkon and what happened to Zorkon, which sort of reinforces the thing about the lions being psychic and Tardises. Um, <laughs> right. With all of that transpiring. And that's sort of Shiro's adventure for the entire episode, which is a great encapsulation because it gives you all these other side points that are going on that what without distracting from the zaniness that the other crew members are going through, mm -hmm. which yeah. both missions are incredibly important. Right. And we, uh, I talked earlier about how sometimes there's episodes where it's just kind of a bridge episode. This is a good way of doing one um, because it's the, we have to give you information about Shiro. We have to get this. These are all about getting a specific um, Lens. lenses for the, the castle which is also a spaceship um, to, to get them out of their current predicament. Uh, so it's really, we set up some conflicts in episode six. We need to resolve those for episode eight, but this is a perfect way to do that because, okay, since we're making relatively small changes, let's take the time to character build. Um, let's take the time to learn more about these characters. And it's also a little small little thing about um, there's a uh, Keith has a knife that he discovers and he doesn't know where it came from and he's trying to find more about it. And so he has, he goes to a knife vendor and the whole scene ultimately from a plot perspective is he goes to the knife vendor, knife vendor gives him a small clue and he moves on. But it's a, it's a great parody of the kind of infomercial knife uh, vendor, you know, like it can cut through anything uh, Ginzu style st uh, of, of marketing um, and so it's like, a, it's like a five minute bit that is actually pretty dramatic and, and leads to kind of a confrontation, but is also kind of funny and, and on a different level. So we learn about Keith, we learn about this world, we learn about the, uh, uh, the dynamics of this, this, this mall, but also that actual subplot does get moved forward. And this is the instance that brings in the best character ever, because so far, this mysterious badass had been sitting back watching these pirates move around. And when this knife vendor calls in for backup, mall security comes into action. Yes. And our heroes escape on a cow. That being followed by a guy on a floating Segway. <laughs> uh, and the other, something else I really want to mention before we move on from this one is that the lenses that they need for the castle that are so important that were incredibly valuable back then are almost like plates now, ten, mm -hmm. like tens of thousands of years later, which is a great way to sort of reinforce how much time has gone by. Not mm -hmm. just the mall itself, but this valuable item for them is now junk equivalently now for us. Yeah. That's a good point. It was a nice way of selling the passage of time in this frankly alien to us as the viewer's environment. So it's good to kind of continue to reinforce how much society has changed. Uh, anything else before we move on to changing of the guard? Uh, no, honestly, um, there's a reason why space mall is hailed as probably one of the favorite episodes of most people who've watched the show. Um, it's, 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 it's the show doing what it does well at its height. Um, even, Hunk's the propensity for Hunk to put him into the kind of situation they put him into he is, is somewhat redeemed through this episode. Uh, food, and though. really every paladin gets something funny to do, even if in, in Shiro's case, it's kind of at his expense, but that's fine. He's supposed to be the straight man. So that works. <laughs> All right. So changing of the guard previously on Voltron. Before this episode, uh, Shiro supercharged the Voltron sword and was used to defeat Zarkon. Mm -hmm. uh, Zarkon is on life support now, sort of tucked away in the back of the fleet, and Shiro is gone, vanished. They mm -hmm. don't know what happened to him. Mm -hmm. And you're dealing with the repercussions now of them missing Shiro with so many people saying Zarkon defeated, 
and people wanting to join forces with the princess and everyone else. And they want to form some sort of like union, but they also want to see Voltron, like this legendary weapon that defeated like this millennia's old enemy. Mm -hmm. And while all this is going on, you have Lotor, who is Zarkon's son, trying Mm -hmm. to like rise up through the ranks and doing his own machinations and plotting and is Mm -hmm. trying to get everyone to serve him, but he's not doing it through fear so much as trying to get them to work together and becoming a deadly force that are all under him, but not fearful of him serving that way. Mm -hmm. It was, um, again, having watched the original show now, uh, this was, Clearly the point where I, I joked about how uh, Sven died and gets replaced uh, because there was a cartoon. It was two different characters and it was rewritten to be that he goes in the hospital and then comes back much later. This is kind of clearly another nod towards that episode structure, but done infinitely better uh, because there's actually stakes and a character we care about involved. Uh but it was interesting to see there's been so many episodes of classic cartoon where it's like, we can't get one of the lions. And it's just kind of a 15 minute inconvenience until they eventually find the lion and form Voltron. This was a nice period where it's like, okay, no, we're going to settle into the status quo for a bit. And we have so hyped up Voltron as, as the, the legendary defender and then now you can't form that now. And people are asking the logical question of, well, where's our legendary defender that we've heard so much about. They put all of their chips into getting people on board through the myth of Voltron. And when they cannot produce that myth, the conflict and the dynamics that come from that are actually really interesting. So it's a nice, it's a quieter episode. There's not a lot. It's setting up the change of guard. makes sense. It's setting up the stakes for the next big conflict. Um, you combine that with Lotor who, for most of the episode comes across as a more benevolence character. Uh, so it's like, he, he, he's not st- stabbing people in the back. He's not playing politics. He leads from the front. He, he inspires the loyalty of his crew until the end. We find out, no, he's actually a jackass. Uh, <laughs> he still is his father's son, but he's just using They're a very it. different method to get that power. Uh, and, and so it's a, it, it's a nice, because you can see where it's going, right? It's the, the alliance is losing power because the, their figureheads cannot be produced, and the 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 evil empire is developing their own figurehead who is very clearly prominent and also conventionally attractive, which helps. So it's the you'd see where the, the propaganda war now starts to take a, a shape and become closer to center stage for the show. One of the other things that's going to come out of this episode that we're not going to touch on with, with our next episodes is that with Shiro gone, there's suddenly a shuffling of who's going to be controlling which lion. Mm-hmm. And you have Keith taking over the black lion. I think Lance and moves to the red lion and mm-hmm. the princess moves to the blue lion. Blue lion. They, 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 which, they get to their original, their classic uh, format, which reinforces one of our other comments about, personality parts for all the different characters sort of being merged and shuffled around mm-hmm. and goes back to Shiro taking over most of what could have been considered Keith's role from the start. And now you have in this canon, Keith living in the shadow of what Shiro did and trying to come to grips with that while taking over for the group and not necessarily have having been like a key member of the group that was all about moral support. And Mm -hmm. at this point, we do know a little bit more about the knife and Keith, which we just give a spoiler. You find out that Keith is actually half alien, if I remember right. Yep. And that's going to be part of his own internal conflict that is going to send ripples out to the entire group. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and it's, again, it's a nice nod towards the original continuity. Uh, um, I'm, I'm digging the remixing of original material and something that's a little more interesting and compelling uh, uh, and frankly making Lotor into someone who's not just a, a sexual creep is, is, is nice. He's still a creep, but it's a very different kind. Uh, uh, and 
again, it, it actually it's, it's nice because it sets up um, uh, uh, Shiro and um, uh, Zarkon as specific antagonists to each other. So they could build up that eventually it's going to be uh, Lotor and Keith who are going to become two who are fighting each other in, in this chunk of the show. In spoiler, I mean, again, for later in the show, Shiro doesn't really come back to the Lions that much after this. Uh, he, he, he has a, a more backstage role, if you will. Um, so it, it's interesting that that was a firm status quo change. Um, if you don't have anything else about this one, we'll jump over to The Legend Begins. Yes. So this one, and I, I specifically chose this one because it gives us a fuller picture of where this universe started and mm-hmm. it is a flashback episode with Corin telling every telling a little story about mm-hmm. the origins of the lion's quintessence, which is a the thing that I alluded to earlier in the podcast that we weren't going to talk about quite yet. Mm-hmm. But there's a a comet crashes onto a, onto the planet. It's a mul- which multi-dimensional properties. And the team then Zarkon, um, Allura's dad, who I have not had to name yet, whose name I've forgotten now. Alfor. Thank you. Uh, Alfor <laughs> sort of go in and they dissect the comet and they extract some of the different materials from it. And Alfor builds Voltron. And mm-hmm. while Zarkon and some other people continue to study the quintessence, they form. <laughs> you're, you're giggling already. <laughs> um. Lost my train of thought now. Thank you. <laughs> so he introduces the lions, all of them, and all of them sort of take on a lion. And that's when they have one of the first battles. And it, they sort of link with the lion so that when they're in the middle of the battle with this quintessence energy blob form, very Cthulian almost, mm-hmm. that they can't quite beat it but they seem to be getting visions and psychic nudges from the lions themselves that have been built. And it's related to the quintessence that was used to make them. And that's when they first form Voltron. They defeat the, the evil, bad, the bad Cthulian creature and they go about their way. And there's love and happiness throughout the universe. And they are protectors and defenders of the galaxy. Right. While Zorkon wants more power and his wife is experimenting on the quintessence. And eventually comes back to all of them saying that we need to go through this portal that's been opened to get pure quintessence that we can do. And Mm -hmm. Alphor can tell that they're somewhat corrupt and refuses to do it. But Zarkon tricks all of them to help save his wife who was dying at the time. Mm -hmm. And they go in through the portal to the other side of the dimension, basically. And Zarkon and his wife absorb pure quintessence. Then Alphor and the other li- and the others close the portal. They bring back Zorkon's body and his wife, who have both considered to be dead. They the planet Zorkon's planet is destroyed, but Zorkon and now the sorcerers sort of rise up from the dead, um, very Sam Raimi like from how they popped up in the, in the image in the anime. <laughs> mm-hmm. They destroy Alphor's planet. Alphor puts his daughter into stasis after linking her to the lions and shoots the lions off in all directions. Cause he knows that if Zorkon acquires them, everyone is pretty much dead. Mm-hmm. And that's our backstory for now, for the lions creation, for what Alphor did for the planets, everything. Yeah. Uh, this is another example of the Netflix format working well, because this entire episode is the flashback. There's no other B plot cut in to kind of give context to it. It's just, you, you start this episode. I mean, you have like a very little bookend at the beginning uh, of, of, of the telling the story, like you said, but otherwise this entire episode is just a flashback. So they actually have time to build this. And uh, on the one hand, it's a little, it's a little, silly um in the sense of you get that kind of myths go in cycles and so this was the exact team before um and, and it, 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 it 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 can come across as a bit trite but i actually really dug it for a couple of reasons one it gives a lot more context to who alfor is and why uh zarkon is so obsessed with not only the black lion but 
Alfor and his family. So it's like, okay, th th there's more context here. That makes sense. It's unfortunate that to make the connection work, they had to kind of invent three other characters and then immediately sign light them. It's like, yes, there are five pilots. So we have to have three more pilots. So I guess we'll just make some people up and shove them in the corner. That, that bothered me a little bit. But if but they it, were actually to ever get a lot more seasons, they, those could have been great additional character stories for later, like their descendants and everything else. Would they've totally. Done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the other thing is, uh, I loved how this pays off something that was in plain sight for the entire run was that um, all of Allura's people, they had these tiny little blue marks under their eyes. Um, but Hagar has these big red gashes down her face. And as she becomes more obsessed, the blue marks slowly darken and eventually get longer than drawing her face and realize that she is one of Alfor's people. Um, and so you see the slow change and realize that those, that tell had been there the entire time on screen and you just didn't connect those dots until the show showed you. And it was like, oh, that's so cool. And I really love when uh, creators can just put those kind of, that kind of information out there and just let people sit with it because you, you feel so... It, 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 it makes you feel like you could have figured that out even though there's no way you could have. Um, and so <laughs> it makes the whole world feel like it's connected and it has a cohesive logic which for a show like this is important because as we talked before, it's kind of muddy on the magic science boundary. And this episode in particular is even muddier on that uh, because ultimately, as I understand it, they've basically built the lions out of Cthulhu blood, which is raises a whole lot of questions. It doesn't just like the, the strange energy from a different dimension that also has connections to time and dimensional travel. TARDIS. And, <clears throat> right. And it just kind of glosses over. It's like, oh yeah, this is totally a thing you can build a robot out of. Okay. <laughs> you know, but um, by, by, by having that kind of myth goes in cycles thing, it actually sells it better in that respect because it's the, it's a, it's a, it's, it's mithril. It, it, it's, it's ancient metal. And so the, the science becomes almost secondary because it's much more, oh, this is, hundreds of thousands, if not millions maybe, of years old. Um, so it just doesn't matter anymore. But certainly now that you've been saying this in my head, I'm going, all of this could have been like a splinter universe of Time Lord intervention that got sectioned off because <laughs> Time Lords realized it was going too far in the wrong direction. See? Just saying. Um, so I really enjoyed the episode, but it also did that thing that I personally despise is the villain isn't bad because they made a choice. This mm -hmm. equivalently says Zarkon got too much bad mojo, learned too much about the mythos, and is evil for that reason. Yeah, that's fair. And th that was a similar problem I had with the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies. All those villains didn't make conscious choices. Something happened to them that made them just do that thing. Dr. Octopus that, literally had the evil switch. Yeah. <laughs> and Norman had his issue and so forth and so on. So yeah. I don't like that. Villains should be making choices too. If they're going to be evil, they're evil for the things they did. Right. Not because energy has made me a bad person. Right. That's perfectly fair. Um, anything else you'd like to talk about this before we move to the last episode as we're running, we're running close to the clock. Nope. Let's go ahead and jump right in. Lion's pride part two, season seven, episode 13. Mm -hmm. You'll notice the last episode I chose was not the final season of Ultron. Um, for this one, this is almost for me, from what I understand, this is the episode that's going to start changing the entire season of the show and season eight would feel like something else. Mm -hmm. And almost this entire episode is Voltron fighting one near massive other, ah, one massive enemy robot that can't seem to be defeated. It mm -hmm. drains her quintessence. You've got Shiro back who's piloting, who's captaining a larger vessel and they're mm -hmm. trying to help them, a, co a Voltron coalition vessel, I think, mm -hmm. trying to help Voltron. And in the end, the ship itself transforms into a massive robot. Yes. That saves Voltron. And Voltron, pretty much for this entire episode, sucks. Yes. 
like Voltron, the legendary millennial weapon powered by the mythos that's defeated swaths of enemies, cannot defeat this one enemy that a alien earthcraft that was built effectively can. Mm-hmm. So it feels like this episode changes the entire premise of the show to set it up to be something else for the following season. Mm-hmm. And I mean, also this episode was kind of boring, to be honest. Uh, you don't think watching 23 minutes of an animated robot fight of Voltron getting smacked around for 22 minutes is not entertaining. I mean, normally I would be all for an entire episode long robot fight, but you're right. It's, it's Voltron's on the back foot the entire time. Um, it, it feels like everything that the team has learned, it's, it's they it even say several times the effect of we're throwing everything at it and it's not enough. Um, it, it, it just feels like very artificial peril. Granted, there may be build up to this that we're skipping over. Um, cause I, dipped out around season five ish. Uh, so it may be that there's a buildup that we're just not seeing here, but it certainly doesn't feel uh, earned. Um, and when the ship turned into another robot and was like, the whole point of Voltron was that this was unique. This was a thing that no- nobody else can do. It was not something that could be replicated in any way. And now suddenly here's another robot. And again, there may be built up for this, but it, I- I'm with you. It, it felt like it, they were trying to emulate the, transition that didn't happen between the two Voltron teams. And this was kind of a nod to start moving it towards something that felt like vehicle Voltron uh, to get that sense of the, 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 the changing of the guard, the episodic nature and, and the fact that Voltron is not just one specific alliance, but a, an institution. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I felt like uh, uh, it should have either been a harder cut and more clear of a reboot. Like I said, like, you know, change the name of the series, start again from season one kind of thing. Uh, or did you, cause you, this is the thing you hate, right? Which is the, um, the wharf problem where this is the toughest person in the universe. And the only way to show how, how scary your bad guy is to beat up the toughest person in the universe. Yep. And then you introduce a new character or thing to beat that. Then you know how awesome they are. Right. It's, it's kind of lazy, honestly. And if they wanted for me, if they wanted to do this and make like the show about Shiro and their new Earth Force, that's Babylon 5 joke there, I just realized. Um, <laughs> they should have had basically Voltron take this near undestroyable robot through the portal to like a quintessence world and have Shiro have to make the hard decision of closing the portal behind them. Right. Mm-hmm. Then that lets Voltron be victorious, goes out on a huge high note possibly could come back sometime in the future, but then you could have season eight of Shiro and earth force. Right. And then you could say things like, you know, um, we've been studying Moltron for the past couple of years through his conflict. So we've been able to reverse engineer certain parts of this and we've been, you know, stealing quintessence from the things we could build this thing, you know, and again, some of the buildup may have been there, but the way the show is written, the transformation looked like it was intended to be a surprise because it would seem mm-hmm. like it was a surprise to the characters. So it does feel like it's just kind of out of nowhere. And this is the down part of what I was talking about in terms of the the Netflix structure is if this was an hour long episode, this might've played better because then we'd have, you know, a long fight scene, but that would have been like at the end of some other plot, but this is just literally a fight for one episode. And as you said, it's, it's, it's not a satisfying fight in any stage imagination. Because Voltron gets like one bit of offense that's about it. It, it, It's in wrestling terms as a squash match where it's just like (laughs) one person just gets beat up. All right. I have to ask. Did you you learn squash squash match from the role-playing game that like you and Matt were working on? Matthew. In case Matthew listens, I I said Matthew. (laughs) (laughs) That always happened. I was always there. Um, No, I mean, I've I've known that for a while, but certainly that was – there's a lot of wrestling terms that are really useful in terms of studying both uh, media and also role-playing games specifically. Um, like to the point where I know heel turns become actually a pretty common 
phrase yeah. for for media study. Um, so it's just they they had to come up with terminology to explain the things that they do, and it's like oh this is really useful. Um, but squash match is just frankly one of them. It's like it's the a one sided fight. Uh, that is only there to showcase how strong a particular character is and minimizes the other character's results. And it's something that does show up in a lot of media. It, it, it's like Dragon Ball Z has a fair amount of those too, you know? So it, it, it's, it is a media thing you can point to, but it's just a really convenient shorthand to explain that very long concept. And at the end, once they win, um, Shiro gives a, a rousing speech to the Earth Force people and that's kind of how the episode ends, mm -hmm. which does feel like season eight is built to be something could be totally different mm -hmm. or it could be more of the same. Alas, I will never know because after this, it has not inspired me to go on to watch season eight or any other episodes we haven't seen. Right. I will say, though, um, because we, we do try to keep these relatively positive and it seemed like this season would be a little more mixed in that um but certainly this is a heck of a lot better than the classic one for my mind uh and i think they made more good choices than bad throughout i could see i could definitely see why this got seven seasons but i think it reinforces the larger point that the clinical classic voltron formula only goes so far uh uh there's a reason why it's almost a joke about how formulaic the Voltron episodes are. Zarkon does a thing, the, the lions have to muddle with it for 15 minutes, then they form Voltron to beat the real beast, and they defeat the real beast. And they stretched that out for several seasons, but now we're clearly saying, like, they got so popular, it's like, we have to keep doing nothing. It's like, but the actual formula can't hold any more weight. We, we, we've put as much possible narrative weight on this as we could. We've done a lot of really cool ways to combine characters and, and for characters, but also some earlier changes have made it harder to make, to, to continue to have this grow. So it's like we have to break Shiro out and bring Shiro back. And it's, this is a show that like, like a lot of shows, unfortunately, if they get super popular, sometimes they end up spinning their wheels near the end. Um, on the Discord, we were talking about uh, Tom Baker, Doctor Who, for example. It's like the first few seasons <laughs> are actually pretty strong, but near season seven, it's like it's clearly worn out as welcome. And I think we're hitting a similar thing here. It's a good show, but a lot of Voltron fans have kind of agreed that the last season or two are, are pretty weak. On, I will agree that it is better than the OG Voltron. Mm -hmm. Simply because, if nothing else, animation, voice acting, consideration for characters, plot, depth not to bash on the OG Voltron because it was made a bajillion years ago now. Yeah. That's a scientific term, but they had, they had a lot of opportunities, I think resources and access to modern culture that they could have continued to do great things. Cause first season gave some nice nods to things they could do. And it built up in second season. Some of the things I saw were also really awesome. Third mm -hmm. season was good. And then it just sort of petered out not of potentially new ideas and started as you're discussing the recycling. And mm -hmm. for me, the show is a solid C plus like, which is a good show. The thing mm -hmm. is there is so much media to ingest. Yeah. C plus. I can't find the time for as I have like a day job writing kids, wife. Um, and I do need to sleep in there somewhere to ah. be able to spend the time to watch a C plus show. And so right. that's not saying it's bad. That's just saying that I can't, I don't have the time to do it with all these other things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're I right. feel we, like we're a positive show about things that we love and I love Dana May. I, like mm -hmm. I said at the start of this, so I'm giving this a more critical eye because of when it was made. And I think I'm, I'm glad we did this because if nothing else, it was good to kind of contrast with the original show um, and to see a group of very talented people go, okay, we see the potential in this show. What can we do with it? And they certainly elevated the material, but I think it also shows that you can't always recapture lightning in a bottle. Um, I think it's good points to all of the attempts to bring back Robotech is, is in a similar vein. Um, nothing will ever be quite that moment in 1984 ever again. Uh, so sometimes when we rewatch these, you know, we've been, you know, like 
like, like I remember when we talked about Buck Rogers. We really enjoyed the kind of 70s campiness of it, but we can't really make that show again. Although, again, I, I argued that Farscape is very much an attempt in that vein. <laughs> um, uh, so, I mean, I, I, it, it, when you use modern storytelling techniques, I agree with you. There's certain expectations that come with that. And we are in a, frankly, a golden age of television right now. There's so much good TV on that I'm with you. It's if you don't have a nostalgic connection to this stuff, it's hard to watch again. But I'm I'm hoping that there are kids who saw this show and love that just as much as I did when I saw the show in '84, and that they're gonna do the next better version of Voltron down the road. Agreed. Um, do you want to let folks know what we're doing next? Uh, yeah. So uh, we've been watching a lot of. Um, anime that's been imported into uh, the U.S. So now we're going to kind of go the opposite direction in the sense of we're going to watch an anime that was heavily inspired by an American cartoon show and then became a Japanese show that then got imported back into the U.S. Um, so moving ahead to 1999 with The Big O. Um, the Big O is made by Sunrise, particularly the division of Sunrise that did the Batman, the animated series in the 90s. So um, that's going to be a really fun, almost kind of an American look at uh, uh, giant robots in a different way. Um, it's complicated. We'll get into it. Uh, but the episodes we're looking at are Season 1, Episode 1, Roger's Negotiator. Season 1, Episode 2, Dorothy Dorothy. Season 1, Episode 4, Underground Terror. Season 1, Episode 12, Enemy is Another Big. Season 1, Episode 13, RD. And Season 2, Episode 1, Roger the Wanderer. And you can find us in High Dive. Awesome. Um, Eddie, if people are looking for you online, where can they find you? You can find me on Twitter at Pugsteady. That's P-U-G-S-T-A-D-Y. Um, you can find me on my website at Pugsteady.com. Uh, you can find me on the Darker Hue Discord talking about DC comics from the 80s, apparently, which is what I'm doing right now. Um, and yeah, uh, and also here every week. And if folks are looking for me, you can find me on Twitter at Darker underscore Hue. You can also find me in the Darker Hue Discord arguing that the Seventh Doctor is the best Doctor. And that I can't wait to see the 14th Doctor and that Romana yes. 1 is the best Romana. All valid points. All right. Um, well, folks, appreciate you tuning in. Uh, catch you on the flip side. Bye.